this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. This week, we're joined by Chuck Echenique, owner of Rebel Yelp Outfitters and Game Calls. Chuck has been operating Rebel Yelp Outfitters for almost three decades, manufacturing game calls and guiding turkey hunts. With that much experience in the woods, chasing not only turkeys, but the elusive Osceola turkey of Florida, he's sure to have plenty of advice for every level, from the complete novice hunter <clears throat> to the hunter who fancies themselves quite experienced. So turn the volume up and get the notepad out, and let's get down to business. Chuck, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, Rebel Yelp Outfitters. Well, I'm uh, I'm 50 years old. I'm a Florida native, uh, sixth generation on my mother's side. We've been here since uh, 1861. I've been um, hunting turkeys since I was a little kid. I grew up out in Odessa, Florida, just uh, north of Tampa, back when it was nothing but uh, orange groves and cattle farms. And uh, had the privilege of being able to hunt some of the best cattle ranches in the, in the state uh, before hunting became a big business. And um, I hunted some up in Alabama as a kid and was fortunate enough to be introduced to a couple of turkey hunting legends, um, Ben Rogers Lee and uh, Eddie Salter. And um, Eddie gave me my first mouth call and Ben gave me my first box call and kind of took me under their wing and teased the heck out of me and taught me how to how to hunt turkeys and um uh you know doing it here in florida every spring break it was pretty much every day heading out and chasing birds around until until we got it perfected and so by the time i was in my 20s early 20s i I felt pretty confident uh in my abilities and uh was fortunate enough to be taught by some of the best so Rebel Yelp Outfitters, you make calls and guide turkey hunts. Yeah, I also got some duck hunts, and when when the ducks duck hunting is worth it, and uh, and alligator hunts, and and I basically started it one because I love turkey hunting more than just about anything, and and two, way to make some extra money that I could pay for my deer leases. <laughs> <laughs> I can I can I can understand that. Yeah, because they're yeah. not getting any cheaper. No, they're not. And, you know, when it came to turkey calls, uh, I, you know, being around guys in the industry, um, I decided one day to take apart a call and see what it, what it looked like on the inside. And, you know, I, I took it apart. And I'm like, I can make this. We're not reinventing the wheel here. I can do this myself. And so I started, started making some really ugly calls in 1994, but they sounded good. And um, by about 96, my calls got better. And, you know, the more you do it, the better you get at it. And you, there's a lot of learning uh, in making calls. But uh, and some guys, you know, make beautiful calls that sound like garbage. And some guys make some ugly calls that sound great. And then there's those that make those that are both aesthetically pleasing and pleasing to the ear. And, uh, and that's where you want to be as a call maker. You want, you know, you want to make something that's uh, a piece of art but it's functional. And, uh, and that's what I've been striving for all these years. And I think I've finally gotten to a place where my calls are, are pretty good. 
So I'd say it's it's pretty safe to say you're making turkey calls, correct? Correct. Well, I make duck calls as well. I mean, honestly, if it makes a sound, I can mimic it. Um, I can figure out a way to make it to where it sounds right. I mean, you're you're basically using wood or plastic and mylar reeds or or some type of surface that you're you're adding friction to or air to. I mean, that's all a call is is you're you're trying to mimic the the sound of an animal and. If you look at all the different types of calls that are out there, from duck calls to grunt calls to owl hooters, I mean, they're all basically the same thing. And, you know, you've got a reed, you've got a tone board, and you've got a barrel, and uh, and you've got a bell, and you run air through it, and that's what it does. So, um, you know, when it comes to friction calls, you've got a pot and you've got a surface, whether it's a trough call or a pot call or or even a box call, you know, you still got a chamber, a sound chamber, and a surface that something is striking against that surface and, and creating a pitch. And so it's it's a musical instrument of sorts. And if you've ever been to any, you know, duck calling competition, they're not calling ducks. They're showing you that they can play that instrument from one end to the other better than the rest of the guys can. Um, meat calling competitions are completely different, but... But the, the, the big stage, the big water calls, you know, the, the one they do in Arkansas every year, the Grand National, that's that's really about playing that, that duck call like an instrument. And so I've I've gotten to the point where I can I can pretty much mimic anything. Um, I even make a coot call, which most people want to tell them I make a coot call, they laugh. Until they go hunting with me and they hear me blow the coot call and they realize that I'm bringing all the coots out of the reeds and we've got a live decoy set. I'm going to have to get one of those. Oh. Yeah, I'm going to say. <laughs> and it, you know, it's not below me to bushwhack me a couple of coots. Yeah, that's where my, yeah, yeah. They eat the same. That's where my mind was going. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about but your I mean, morning it's, call. It's funny. Yeah. You know, so, you're sitting there in, in the dark, and, and it's quiet, and you start you start hitting that coot call, and all of a sudden they start answering and coming out of the reeds. And before you know it, your two dozen decoy spread has got 40 coots in it. Chuck, and it, you know, helps draw the, the birds in pretty well. Chuck, what do you got for a moorhen call? Well, it's the same thing. I mean, coot call, moorhen call, they basically make the same sounds. Um, but it's, uh, mine actually doubles as a wood duck call, so you can do both with it. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very similar to the Haydell's wood duck call. Um, it's modeled after that. I just tweaked the reed set a little bit, made it a little bit higher pitched. And you can growl it and, and, and get that, that, that coot cackle and that coot growl and whine. It's basically four, four different tones that you get to the call. And I've gotten it to where, you know, I can, I can make it sound it. And if you're sitting back and you don't see me, you can't tell the difference between a coot and the call that I'm making. That's awesome. Yeah, it really is. I mean, yeah. we have almost, what, an entire bag of coot decoys that we end up throwing out <laughs> in our spread. That, right. that save a lot right. of weight if you could just yeah. call in the live coots. Yeah, it, it's. I've gotten rid of most of my coot decoys because I don't feel like carrying them. Unless we're hunting big water with, you know, with the boat, and then we're carrying five or six dozen coot decoys, and we might throw out you know a half dozen puddlers or something like that, but or ringers, a dozen ringers. But other than that, I mean, it's, it's coots, coots, coots. So what's your what's your favorite call to make? My favorite call, well, I just came up with a new design. Um, I've always made calls out of wood, and I've done some polymers and stuff like that, but I just started using Corian. The, um, 
the counter material. Oh, okay. All right. And um, Corian's got different materials that they use, but they have one that's basically a, a resin that looks like quartz or, or marble, mm-hmm. but it's a resin. So it's, it, it's easy to cut. It's easy to turn on a lathe. It drills nicely. It leaves really clean holes. It doesn't have a lot of chatter to it. It polishes beautifully. And the density on it and the weight on it just makes for a superior call. And it's it's new for this year for me. I call it my spur collector. And um, I've made 10 of them so far. And the way that the birds react to it is absolutely amazing. I mean, I've been making calls now for 26 years. And these by far are the best calls I've ever made. So how big a role does the material you're using play in the sound of well, the call? It, it makes a lot of difference. I mean, as a call maker, you need to know what the the sound characteristics are of each wood. Certain woods are more dense than others. Um, for instance, if you take a Spanish cedar, aromatic cedar, it's very lightweight, right? It doesn't have a lot of density to it. So you, if you're going to make a call out of one of those, a pot call, you need to leave more wood on the call. That pot needs to be bigger and thicker in order to get the resonation out of it that you need in order to, you know, reach birds and, and get that sound, that, that quality of sound where you can go from soft to loud and and be able to, to do all the sounds in between. But if you take something that's more dense, like a Brazilian cherry or a purple heart, that wood is much harder. It's much denser. Um, Indian rosewood is another great one. Um, those those have a much better sound quality to them so you take more wood away you don't have to make as big and heavy a pot in order to get the the sounds that you want out of it and uh so so if guys are making you know if if there are call makers out there that don't pay attention to the size or the density of the wood and they make all their calls the same size you know they're turning them on a cnc machine or something like that instead of hand making them and so it's uh, it's much harder for you to have consistency in the in the sound of your call. Yeah, the material probably plays a a big role in the aesthetics too, because I know like that purple heart's a beautiful wood. It is, and it's hard to work. That's the problem with it. You know, it's so hard. Um, you've really got to do a lot of polishing on it and have a really good finish to it to bring that color out. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, it kind of looks grayish when you're done with it. But in order to bring that purple out, it's really got to be highly polished. So it takes, it probably takes three times as long to build a good quality purple heart call than it would, say, one out of walnut. So you got to take it, you're turning these calls on a, like a lathe? Yeah, I use a, a bench lathe, um, a fairly small bench lathe that's an 18 inch. So it's 18 inches long, and it'll do up to an 8 inch square block of wood on it. It's got enough clearance for 8 inches. And uh, so it'll turn small bowls and things like that. But I use it for, you know, just for turning pots and, and um, duck calls and, and game calls of all sorts and strikers. So do you think you have a tuned ear for the sound of these calls? You have a lot of uh, musicians out there that can, the example is musicians can hear when a, an instrument is slightly out of tune. Do you yeah, think you, you know, I think. I think any any turkey hunter who spent time in the woods and listened to live birds can can get the same ear. Um, I don't think I have a better ear than most anyone else. I just I know what I like to hear. I know what the birds have liked to hear. 
and I can tell when a call sounds hollow or when it sounds plastic or, or when it's just, you know, not sounding right. Maybe a surface is coming unglued and it's, it's got kind of that, that thin sound to it. Um, you know, there's, there's lots of little things or, you know, you've got a cracked surface or something like that and, and the, the call will sound flat. So you can hear that. And anybody who's played with calls or, or hunted long enough will, will be able to hear the same thing. So Chuck, it, go ahead, Jim. You. If you kind of broke a turkey call, the noise down into three parts between tone, volume, and cadence mm-hmm. to a novice turkey caller, what would you suggest that they focused on first, second, and third? Small, I know they're all well, important, but what's what's the yeah? Cadence is not that big a deal. I think most guys most guys make the mistake of calling too fast or calling too much or both. Um, and calling too loud is another thing. I, I prefer soft um, because turkeys have got incredible hearing. So, you know, if, if you and I are talking normally and we can't hear somebody at, at 10 yards, those birds could hear us talking normally at 70 yards. They have that, that kind of hearing. Um, so you don't have to be loud with birds. I mean, it's nice to get loud when it's windy, so sound will travel. But for the most part, you don't have to really get loud. And most birds, if you hear them in the wild, they don't get loud unless they're really excited about something. You know, on occasion, you'll get a loud mouth hen. But for the most part, they're, they're putting, they're purring, they're whining a little bit. But they're, not, they're not making lots of noise. They're not talking loud. So you want to try and be as realistic as possible. So for me, the, the biggest thing is, is the, um, the, the amount of calling you do and the loudness of calling that you do. But keep it slow, keep it sparse. That's what I tell most people, less is more. How important are things like the the really faint, you know, if you've ever had turkeys walking right up on your hens or whatnot, and you hit that, mm-hmm. those little just, I can't even do it in the record. Yeah, the real soft furs. I mean, they're, they're barely audible. You think that the turkeys can hear those things at 20 and 30 yards, so if you're, if yes. they're out there looking for you, it's not even necessarily a noise you'd make with your call, but just by... You know, cooling yeah, a little it, bit. Is that, is yeah, that really you can, heavy? It, it's something that I try not to do because you can end up blowing it out too hard. Okay. And if it's if it's too loud, again, it, it spooks the birds. But when you get into a situation like that where you've got birds that are kind of hung up and, and they're being really soft, rather than call, scratching leaves works great. You know, because that's what they're doing. When they're feeding, they're scratching through leaves and they're, they're barely making a sound. Um. And I've, I've killed plenty of birds that way. You know, you get a bird that's standing there, he's in strut, or he's standing there looking, and he's not really moving from his spot. He just keeps kind of coming in and out of strut and looking. And if you start scratching at him a little bit, a lot of times he'll come out of strut and come right into you. He's looking for that hen, you know. Um, and our birds down here, the Osceolas are so so quiet to begin with because everything goes after them. Everything eats them, you know. Um, so that's it's one of their defense mechanisms is they're, they're noisy on the limb and they're quiet on the ground. And, um, that's, that's what I tend to do is to, to do more realistic, um, feed scratching or, you know, maybe a a wing flap or something like that. If I can get away with the movement as opposed to doing the calling. So what made you want to start guiding hunts? All right. before I, we ask that question, what started first, guiding hunts or making calls? Guiding hunts started first. 
got in hand started two years before making calls. Um, and I got into the call making because I got tired of paying for junk. You know, uh, you go out and you get a plastic pot call or some cheap wooden call that's, you know, glued together. And within a couple of years of keeping it in your garage, the surface comes apart. The glue that they're using is garbage or you pull out of the package and there's no consistency to the sound of the call. So I decided I was going to make something that was mine that I could kill birds with. And, and it was more personal for me. Um, and eventually it got to the point where I was able to sell them. People liked them and they worked. So I started marketing them on a you know personal level and I still, I don't make a ton of calls. I make them one at a time. I don't keep inventory. I keep my surfaces and my wood and stuff like that here. But if you call me, your call is being made once you ordered it and you tell me what you want. They're made to order, you know, when I called you and asked about a pot call, one of the things, you're a pretty serious fellow a lot of times, but I asked you, I said, Chuck, I think I want a pot call. Man, listening to you on the other end of the phone, you were like a little kid, oh, I'm going to make you this, not glass. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it was, um, that's part of the reason why when, when I was chatting with Will and Jordan, and I said, you know, who could we have on? I said, I think I got a fella, right? Because I, I knew you made calls, but that passion and that excitement of like a little kid, like I'm going to make you the greatest call ever. I knew you didn't say that, but that was the, that was the enthusiasm that came through the phone. All, all call makers are proud of their stuff. And if you're not, there's no reason to be doing it. You know, it's the same, it's the same passion that you have about hunting. If you, if when you're deer hunting, you don't get that buck fever after you pull the trigger, or if you know, you don't get excited and the hair on your arms doesn't stand up and you hear that bird gobble in the morning, then you're in the wrong sport. You're, you're, you've lost your passion for it and go find something else to do because it's not getting it for you anymore. So I, you know, whenever, if I ever lose it, I'll stop, but I enjoy making them. I like, I like watching them come to life and every call takes on its own, its own personality. So, um, and I could sit here and make the same call over and over and over again, exactly the same way. And every one of them is going to have its own distinct characteristics and its own little sweet spot to play. And, uh, and, and that's what's cool about it. You know, it's not something that's being made by a machine. It's being made by a person. So it's, it's very personal to me. You know, last week we, we kind of touched on, or not last week, but the week before, we touched on the power that is behind a turkey gobble. Oh, yeah. Uh, we were the last weekend of duck season. We went up to Georgia, uh, to bring one of my buddies over who's been, who had been deployed to, uh, Germany and, and Eastern Europe for about nine, six, nine months, something like that. We brought him over for a duck hunt, got him up on our lease and some flooded timber in South, in South central Georgia. And, uh, one morning we were there, and right at sunrise, gobblers just lit up off the roost, and mm-hmm. everybody's head turned. We weren't hunting turkeys, but the power associated behind a, a turkey gobble is just—it's unmatchable. Oh, I mean, that—it's—it's that, it's thunder. I mean, the, the the thundering gobble of a turkey sets every hair on your body on end. You know, and, and I, I love sitting in a tree stand late in the fall, early into the winter. And, and, you know, it's crisp and it's cool and it's quiet and all of a sudden a bird fires off and, man, it gets you so excited for the spring. 
you know, at that point you're like, okay, deer season can wind down now. I'm I'm ready to turkey hunt again. Good old thunder chickens. Oh yeah, man. Yeah. Those things and those rare occasions where you're kind of in heavy cover and you know that turkey's just navigating his way to you using the handful of bushes as cover, mm-hmm. and then lets out that rip, and he's only ten or fifteen yards away, and you actually you feel it vibrating. You know your 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 diaphragm just mm-hmm. below your breastbone. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing. I mean, I don't know. The only thing better than a gobble. The only thing better than a gobble in the back of your ear is when you're sitting in the palmettos and he's so close that when he's spitting and drumming, the yeah. palmettos around you are vibrating. I've had that on more than one occasion. And let me tell you, it is just the best thing in the world. Absolutely. <laughs> Coming unglued, man. It's hard. All the adrenaline's just Absolutely. Screaming. I mean, you just you can't, you can't sit can't still. Move. You can't yeah. move. <laughs> yeah, no, but you still can't sit still. I mean, you feel like you're jumping out of your skin. Yeah. Even though you're you know, you're sitting you're sitting there motionless, but yeah, you feel like you're jumping out of your skin when it happens. So what what made you want to start guiding turkey hunts? Well, um, I knew I was good at it. I knew I was good at turkey hunting, and with the fact that you know you can only kill two birds, and the season's five weeks long, um, and usually you know done killing birds pretty quick, and I wanted to keep calling birds, and for me calling the bird in to the gun is the same as pulling the trigger as far as I'm concerned. So if I'm the one calling the bird and bringing him to the gun, I'm the one who killed it, whether I pulled the trigger or not. So it was about, you know, practicing on them and, and, and bringing that joy to other people. And I just, I, I love turkey hunting so much. I figured how can I keep doing it all season and watching these birds flop? Well, I'll start guiding. And I had access to, you know, some private land close to home, a couple hundred acres, 300 acres. It was down the street from the house. Didn't cost me anything. Landowner let me hunt it, let me run service, guide service on it. And I started out doing Osceola hunts on private land for 200 bucks a bird. It was, you know, ridiculously cheap. But it was, you know, it was right before things really started getting to be a big business. In 1992, when I started, I think the most expensive turkey hunts in the state were maybe 1500 bucks, And that was with food and lodging, and they were three-day hunts, and they were on the bigger ranches. And here I am, you know, it's a day hunt. You're going to hunt the morning. You're going to get a bird. 200 bucks for a couple hours was well worth it for me. I didn't need a whole lot, so that's what I started doing. And for an extra 25 bucks, I'd, I'd lug that big VHS camcorder out there and record it for you. So, Chuck, you were just talking about um, how the price of, of hunts, especially for the Osceola, have changed during your, your hunting career. And that kind of dovetails into a question that a couple of people have brought up lately, and that is um, that the Osceola turkey is something that only exists in Florida, especially in southern Florida. Big Cypress is one of the only places that you can get to them without a quota permit. There's been more... There's been more media on YouTube and, and Facebook about, you know, suggesting, hey, non-resident hunters, come on down here, hunt in Big Cypress, and and kill your Osceola. Mm-hmm. Um, the concern is that that pressure is is putting Floridians. It's making it harder on South Floridians to draw tags because there's more competition for them, uh, etc. Can you can you speak on that a little bit about uh, how big a threat that is? If there's sure. any 
you know, is there anything to be done, raising prices, limiting the draws for out-of-state hunters, et cetera? All right. Well, I mean, you've got two different issues when it comes to public land. You've got quota hunts and you've got non-quota hunt areas. So Big Cypress is a non-quota hunt area. So um, anybody can go hunt it. It doesn't matter whether you're a resident or not. You buy your license. The license is an over-the-counter license. You can go. Um, across the road and adjacent to Big Cypress, you've got Picky and Strand. Picky and Strand is only quota, so and that place is absolutely sick with birds, um, which is you know it's, it's a high draw, uh, high, highly sought after draw, and it's a very limited hunt. So that's that's a place where maybe it would be affected, but when it comes to the open areas, um, pressure is pressure whether it's coming from the residents or not, those areas are always going to be more, more pressured because they don't require a quota permit. So um, it's one of the few areas that allows non-residents to come down and be able to try and take a turkey without having to go through the quota permit and take a highly sought-after permit from a state resident um, or, or reduce our, our ability to draw one. And, and I believe we've got somewhere in the neighborhood of about 14,000 just under 14,000 quota permits that are issued throughout turkey season um, with somewhere in the neighborhood of around 36,000 applications. So it's three to one um, that you've got applications to available permits. And with that, you know, that that means that a lot of people are going to have to go into these open areas. Um, And there's a lot of people that hunt private land as well. Don't get me wrong. So you've got a very large number of people who come down to spend their money from out of state go to private land outfitters. They want quality experience. They're willing to pay for it. There's not as many people doing the freelance stuff as you might think. Um, When it comes to the quota permit hunts, you have two different quota permits. You've got the regular quota permit, which everybody buys their management stamp. They put in if they get drawn great, if they don't to get a preference point. And you just try it again next year or go for the reissues. And then you've got special opportunity. Now, special opportunity, you can put in as many applications as you want at $5 per app, right? So that can be unfair um, to some people because they don't have the money to spend to put in a bunch of applications. So it doesn't matter whether they're non-resident or not. The good thing about the special opportunity hunts is that when it comes to non-resident permit issuance, no more than 10% of those permits can go to a non-resident hunter. And special opportunity permits, on average, less than 5% actually go to non-resident hunters. So we never hit that 10% mark. When it comes to regular quota permits, less than 2% of the regular quota permits go to non-resident hunters. So they're really not making that big of an impact, even though we as resident hunters think it might be that because you go into an area and you see a, a an out-of-state tag on a truck and you go man then people from south carolina and then people from georgia here man and people from washington state wherever you know they're always coming down and hunting our turkeys but the reality is is that it's only happening on a few areas that don't require per- permits and the places that do have permits just aren't being sought after by that many non-residents then you got guys like me i run public land hunts so on average, I go somewhere between, you know, 15 to 25 hunters a season. And I work with my non-resident hunters to make application. And if they get drawn, 
then we hunt on a quota permit. And if they don't get drawn, we hunt on an open area or we postpone until they do get drawn for something. Um, and so my hunters have a high success rate uh, when it comes to taking their birds. The last five years in a row, I've had a hundred percent success rate, but we're utilizing, you know, some quota permits and other areas that are open and it has to do more with my ability as a guide to scout and locate birds that other people aren't pressuring as opposed to just drawing good quality permits because we're killing birds on places that are fairly high pressured that most people wouldn't consider um, a quality hunt in their mind because it doesn't require a permit. And that comes back down to your scouting and then your ability to nurse the bird in, I guess. Just to back right. up just to back up to something you said about the two percent. Mm-hmm. Uh so that I, I've got clarification and clarification for the other folks who might be listening to the podcast. Um I think you indicated that when you're talking about just general permits where you get in a line and you either draw or you get your preference point, mm-hmm. only about two percent of those tags are going to out of state hunters. Correct. Got it. And how many, and are, is it, no, I guess they wouldn't, they just have to buy the turkey license to go if they're hunting private land. So that's, that's for all public land access. That's for, that's for public land quota only access. Understood. So that's where you can, and, and just to be clear, cause I think a lot of people may not realize that you sit on, what is the, it's not a tag group. What is the board that you sit on within FWC that works with staff to help work through some of these issues? Well, we have a quota hunt work group that's just been reconvened after 10 years. Actually, it's been 11 years since we had the last quota hunt work group. And I was on that first one too. That, that first group came up with the guest permit system. That was actually Newton cook's brainchild. Um, and you know, we, we came up with, um, with the, um, the 10% on the special ops. Um, so there's uh, different aspects of that, that of the, the current quota system, that came out of the first work group and now we've, you know, it's 10 years later and it's time to do another 10 year plan to address some issues that have been raised by, by hunters. Um, some of it is, you know, permit issuance. Some of it is preference points and, and how they're applied, um, permit, uh, returning and stuff like that. So that's the quota hunt work group. And it's a combination of stakeholders, um, wildlife professionals and FWC staff. That was what I was asking about. It's the quota hunt work group. That's where all the data came from about the 2% versus everybody else. Correct. correct? Yeah. Correct. That's all va- I just, I imagine there's some people that might be listening to this later on going, where the heck's he pulling those numbers? I swear I see 35 cars from <laughs> California out there killing my birds. <laughs> so, yeah, <clears throat> you talk about these, we talk about pressured birds mm-hmm. and and the Osceola, I mean, there's only so much public land south of 70, mm-hmm. which, well, before I get into that, I, I really, I, I saw a post today about on Facebook about a guy who killed an Osceola and somebody called it an Eastern Osceola hybrid, but he says he killed it south of 70. How do you feel about that? that uh 70 highway 70 designated the, the demarcation line yeah uh yeah um well you know having grown up in central florida 
um, in Odessa on the West Coast here, just north of Tampa. Our birds, the way we looked at it before the National Wild Turkey Federation decided to chime in, and that's that's where the new line that got drawn is NWTF's doing. The line that goes from you know Duval County and down along the north edge of Alachua and the south end of, uh, of Gilchrist and across Levy County uh, out to the coast, that's an NWTF line. And they drew that because they wanted to allow people to have a better opportunity to get on birds in a bigger portion of the state. Um, but as a kid growing up, there really was no demarcation line. You had the south zone because of the fact that birds started gobbling earlier and going to nest earlier south of 70. And everything north of it, they treat it as just one lump thing. But we always looked at if you were north of State Road 40, you were killing Easterns. And some of people even said if you were north of State Road 54, you were killing Easterns. So um, we always considered, you know, most of us considered the Osceola's basically from Ocala South. And perfect example there's a, a management area just north of ocala and south of palatka called caravel ranch i love caravel ranch it's a great place to hunt it's hard to get drawn there but it's a beautiful piece of property and it's got a lot of birds and if you can get in there they only have two hunts a year and then it's over uh plus the youth hunt so you got two five-day hunts and a two-day youth hunt and that's it um but we've killed birds in there in the same field the same dove field where you've got um, a bird that looks like a true eastern. It's got, you know, the white bars that go all the way across the, the wing feathers. And the next bird that we've shot would have black muted wings with hardly any white on them. And, and so you've got hybridization there. But the further south you get, it's really hard to find hybrid birds south of I-4. You know, it really is. It's hard to find a hybrid bird south of I-4. If you've got them there, it's only because it's an anomaly. It's not It's not the norm. As you say, where I live in Wakiva, the birds we've got running around, every one of those things got the short, stumpy little legs, dark tail feathers, you know, and darker wings with a little bit of white on them. And I've had mm-hmm. people try to tell me that that's not an Osceola. I'm like, well, they don't look anything like the birds we kill in Georgia. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It, it, well, it, then that's a hybrid bird alone. there. And that's yeah. a hybrid bird there in some cases. But as far as I'm concerned, you know, the, the leg length isn't the big issue. It's what really demarcates one species from another is that wing color. And if you've got black wings with very little white, it's it's an Osceola as far as I'm concerned. And yeah. I think most people would, would give you credit for it now. Yeah, if you want to do it in the swamp and be a traditionalist and be south of State Road 70, okay. But it doesn't make it any less of an Osceola killed on the north side of Arcadia. Man, I'd kill one off a lawnmower if I had the opportunity. (laughs) (laughs) With the lack of success I've had turkey hunting, I would count it successful if I accidentally hit one with my truck. Hey, man, bird's a bird, (laughs) and, and, and they're all trophies as far as I'm concerned. You know, it doesn't, I don't, I don't really care about spur length or beard length. If you've called a mature bird to the gun and been able to harvest him, you've done something most people can't. Yep. So I'll tell you And that's this. all that's important. I have an itch and I, and a, and a love, a, a little bit of a, I say an affection for turkey hunting. Mm-hmm. 
I have never killed a turkey, but I really enjoy turkey hunting. And I'm almost af- I'm almost afraid to kill a turkey. Because I'm afraid that if I do the then I'm just gonna man. yeah, I'm, it's gonna the, the bug's gonna bite well, we, me and then we I'm just, gonna die. We just need to get, get the stink off of you then. We just we'll let you, <laughs> let's go out and kill a Jake and work your way up. On your bones, right? I <laughs> yeah, I've pulled the trigger. I have pulled the trigger on a turkey and didn't manage uh-huh. to kill it. I've been on a guided hunt that I was that I was able to get drawn for uh, in Kentucky uh, with a pro staffer from Quaker Boy and really? was still not able to kill a turkey. Oh, so you just got the stink on you. You stink bit. And it, it smells bad. Can you smell it from yeah. where you're at? Yeah. <laughs> well, if you're not if you're not doing anything this weekend, I, I can take you to Georgia and watch a miss a turkey too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you might you might watch me get them to within you know stones throw and then do something stupid and, and watch it take off like a bat out of hell. I'm pretty good at that too. The only one that I've been able to pull the trigger on, I had prior knowledge of uh, a cornfield that had been uh, harvested and they let a lot lay. So I, I told the guy who had, I, I took a buddy of mine who had never been turkey hunting in his life. I said, hey, if you want to go, I'll take you. I said, but I'm shooting first because I still haven't killed a turkey. And he <laughs> said, absolutely, let's go. So we got out of the truck. I said, I'm pretty sure these birds are going to be roosting down here towards this field. Uh, we're going to park on this fire break, walk in, hit the logging road, and go that direction. Parked the truck, got down the logging road, uh, locator call, hoot out call, and he fired right back. I said, dude, we got to get moving because he's right where I thought he was going to be. Mm-hmm. Got about 300 yards shy of where we thought we wanted to set up, and he came out of the roost and landed in the road 30 yards in front of us. Oh, man. And I'm just standing there in the middle of the road right at daybreak, and I said, well, I got to try. So I slowly eased my shotgun up. And when I got it up to my shoulder, he stuck his head out to look at me. And I, I let him have it. He, the dirt started flopping. I thought I was just successful. I finally killed a turkey. And then he flew away. Oh. <laughs> he just shot him. That happens. That happens. I had that happen last year with um, actually the guy I'm staying with this weekend. I took him to one of my little honey holes in the forest up in Ocala. And called a bird into him 25 yards he shot him in the chest the bird rolled and i said shoot him again shoot him again shoot him again and he just sat there and watched him and the bird got up and flapped off and was gone and it was a giant bird i mean it's an absolute giant bird and i know the bird's dead somewhere but we couldn't find him we put a dog on him we couldn't find him we searched for that turkey for hours in the direction he went and never found him yeah they'll they'll get up under something and unless you happen to step on it You'll never find them. If you I were mean, to look just... at me, you would not think that I am fleet of foot. But if you want to see a 250 to maybe 260-pound man move like grease lightning, <laughs> watch me pull the trigger on a turkey, and that sucker starts to flop. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh yeah. man. I'm like Hussein Bolt out of the blocks, man. I'm going after that yeah. thing. I don't sit there and... I don't sit there and watch my handiwork. I'm yeah. like, I'm, you yeah, are I'm not that, running I'm, away on me. <laughs> Jim, you, you know how big I am. I'm I'm three twenty. Oh my god, and, really? And I'm only five ten. And I've got terrible knees and I have to roll over onto all fours to stand up from a sitting position. But when I shoot a bird, I can amazingly the adrenaline is running through me so hard that I can jump straight up out of my turkey lounger chair and chase that bird down without even so much as a limp. Um it just 
something about adrenaline, man, makes your body go. Yeah. Things that it's not supposed to do. I actually had a, a buddy that I met in college, and we were in a night class together. And I had said something about hunting within the class, and uh, we had stepped out for a break. He's like, dude, you turkey hunt? I was like, oh, yeah, dude, I love to. He's like, man, I'm from I'm up from Jacksonville. I'm down here playing baseball. He's like, we need to go. So season hit, and we went out, and I took him to a little spot where I knew some birds were. And it was uh, it was actually like an old subdivision that they mm-hmm. had started to develop, like put the road in, and then did nothing else. And so there was a retention pond in the back, and I said, these birds always, they're always on the backside of that pond first thing in the morning. So we get out there, and I call, and he gobbles, and I'm like, right where I think he is. We go down into the pond and we get just, I mean, just barely to the top of that hill. And I called again and he gobbled. I was like, ooh, he is right there on the other side. So I said, all right, next time he gobbles, pop up, blast him. So he gobbles again. He pops up and blasts it. It starts wobbling. I said, go get it, get it, get it, get it. And he took off running and grabbed it. And he comes back. He's like, that damn thing spurred me. Oh yeah, <laughs> he had a big old cut. Nasty. Yeah, he had a big old cut on his hand from where the bird had got him. But it was a good bird. It had an eleven inch beard on it. It was a nice bird. Nice, that's a good bird. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> hunting public land birds is is not easy because you have a lot of, especially in the late season, because you've got a lot of pressure uh, mm-hmm. from other hunters. <clears throat> what are some of the tactic tactics that help you be? successful throughout the season and especially in late season um well again birds are vocal animals right turkeys are vocal i don't truly believe that birds get call shy um but when it comes to hunting birds over calling is a big problem so you call sparingly and the later in the season it gets the more we sit and the less we call um the other thing that I like to do is I, I'm I'm huge huge user of maps. You know I I learn an area inside and out. I try and figure out where the birds are going from one minute to the next throughout the day and be in position to cut them off, or at least be in the general area that I think they're going to be at that given time of the day. So knowing what your birds are doing on a given piece of property is very important. It's kind of like duck hunting. Calling is not the big thing. It's being where the birds want to be, right? So you need to know what those birds are eating, what they're doing throughout the day. You know, it's a lot of preseason scouting and a lot of repetition. Birds will basically do the same things. Even when they're pressured, they'll still be in the same areas. They just won't talk as much. Um, And they'll be a little bit more cautious about coming in. So you'll want to, you know, watch your backside when they come in. If you're calling in a certain direction, they may not come in from the front like they normally do. They'll come around from the backside of you, and they'll take twice as long to get there, and they'll come in silent. And a lot of times a bird will bust you that you never even knew was there and be gone before you you know it. You'll never see them, but it happens. Um, so, I, again, I learn the area that I'm going to. I learn the pat- I try to pattern those birds to see what they're doing. And then I also try and find areas that are harder to get to that I think might be – an escape route or a safe haven for birds that most people won't go into. For instance, Lake George, there's a lot of places in Lake George that are really hard to access off of the lake. They're part of the public area, but you've got to crawl through some swamps that are maybe waist deep to get to them. And if you can find those little isolated areas, 
chances are you're going to score on a bird late in the season in those isolated areas. So you, uh, you carrying chest waders and, and, and is part no, of No, we just go wet, man. There? Just wow. go wet. Wow, hardcore. Damn. Hardcore. You're a bad man. You know, so the the one thing about being wet, every time I've gotten wet, I have dried off again. So yeah. it's... <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. I mean, Eventually. that's a given. Yeah. Uh, unless it's humid, which you never know what you're going to encounter in the spring in Florida. Well, if and... it's humid, you're going to be wet all day anyway. <laughs> you correct. <laughs> so whether it's sweat or whether it's swamp, it, it's still swamp below, let me tell you. So when you talked about maps. When mm-hmm. you're looking at those maps, what are you what are you looking for on a map? Oh, good question. Um, well, you got to think like a bird. What do birds like to do when they get down? What do they like to do middle of the day? What do they? Where are they going in the afternoons? And then again into the evening, they're going back to roost. So the first thing I look for to identify, let's say I've never even been on a piece of property. The first thing I look at is I look for what I think are possible roost trees close to water or over water that are nearby to a strut zone and feeding areas. And as you get later into the season, hens will be less and less with the gobblers first thing in the morning because they're going to be sitting on nests. So you want to start abandoning open fields and field edges and start hunting more isolated um, trails or open pines um, places where a bird can still strut, but he feels safe. He's not coming out of all the cover in the world. Unless, of course, it's raining. Rain changes everything. Birds will go to open fields when it's raining because they can't hear in the woods when it's raining. So they can see, they feel safe out in the wide open. Um, but, you know, normal day, I'm going to get close to a swamp edge, maybe back in the swamp and find a little island back there or an opening back there that, um, has food, has cover, is close to roost, and they don't have to go far. And so those kind of places would be ideal to kill a big mature tom late in the season. Uh, But early in the season, I'm looking for field edges close to food, water, and roost. And and I, I move the same way the birds do, meaning that, you know, early in the season, I'm in those open areas, and then later in the season we get, the more remote we get kind of push back into further deeper cover and uh and it it tends to work so can you tell me because i honestly don't actually know what i'm looking for but i've heard the term many times what is a strut zone okay so a strut zone is basically an open piece of ground that a bird feels comfortable Um, being able to display himself for some distance where hens can see him. And it could be a small little straightaway in a road, in a dim road. It could be uh, a wide open row of pines where they thinned it out. It could be um, a small little grassy area in the middle of an oak hammock. It could be, you know, uh, the underside of an oak hammock that's just, you know, a brown desert under there that's, you know, encompassed in, fennels and stuff on the outside where it's hard to get into it without making a lot of noise so anything can be a strut zone but you want an area where a bird feels like he's protected yet he can be seen for some reasonable distance 50 60 yards maybe maybe something as small as 30 or 40 yards 
um, and strut zones vary by bird. But what you're looking for is you're looking for when you're scouting, you're looking for tracks. And then if you can find wing marks on the ground where those tracks are, or if you see gobbler tracks that are kind of, you know, walking around in little circles or crossing each other, then you found an area where a bird has gone into strut and, and he's pinwheel, what I call pinwheeling, where he's just kind of standing in one position and just turning like he's on a turntable or on a pinwheel um, in strut, you know, showing himself off from every angle to the girls. Do you find the turkeys will continuously reuse the same strut zones over and over? Yes, they will, especially early in the season. Um, I mean, if the mood hits him and he thinks that there's a receptive hen in the area, he can go into strut anywhere, you know. But um, generally, if a bird's going to come down in the morning from the roost and go into strut, when he's got hens around him, he's going to find a slightly open area where they can all see him and he can see all of them. And, um, and you've got some, you know, a reasonable open space there. And they'll, they'll particularly, they'll use those, they'll use the same general areas to roost. Some birds will roost in the same tree over and over again. Some birds will roost in the same general area, same set of trees. Some will just use the same swamp. Um, they could be on the North end or the South end or the East side or the West side. doesn't matter that, They'll use that swamp, but it won't be in exactly the same place. It'll just be the same general area. And that area can vary from a 50-yard radius to, you know, a quarter-mile radius. So what is the biggest mistake a novice turkey hunter can make that will make or break a hunt? Moving too much. Moving too much will always spook birds. And by moving too much, I mean not just, you know, moving around while you're sitting there trying to be still, but being impatient and getting up. You know, you hear a bird in the morning and he's generally close. If you can hear a bird, an Osceola bird gobble in the morning, chances are he's inside of 250 yards. Because most of them, with as loud as we think they are, their sound just does not carry through the density of of our woods, especially with as humid as it is most mornings. So that bird's going to be, you know, inside of 250, maybe 300 yards at most. He's not that far away. If you can hear him clearly, he's close by. And if you can hear him and you call to him, he knows exactly where you are. So you want to call a little and then sit and wait. And if he cuts you off while you're calling, shut up. He knows where you are and he's coming. If he free gobbles on you after you've called and he's responded once and you don't say anything, he gobbles again, you can respond to him, but don't get all excited. You know, just be soft. We've killed more birds just doing soft putts and yelps than we have going through a full call sequence and whining and kicking and doing lost hen yelps and all the whole repertoire. It's nice for the camera. And when I had a television show, it was great to do that sort of stuff, but it's not, it's not what kills birds. What kills birds is being a good hunter, not being a good caller. So, and that was one of the hardest things I struggled with up until um, going on that, that guided hunt. Was I, I mean, I learned a lot from that guy. Even, even though I didn't kill a bird that day, I never realized... It never occurred to me 
that I was calling too much. And that's a hard thing to break, especially as, yes. a, as a novice turkey hunter, because you're getting the, the turkey to gobble back is, is almost a measure of success when you start. Right. right. You're doing something right. Mm-hmm. Um, but every time he gobbles, he's calling hens to him. Correct. We're trying to reverse nature. Right. So that that's that's something that's even still today, even though I know better, it's still hard for me to wrap my yeah. head around that. There's something else that a lot of guys do that I, most people, when they help me, they're completely surprised. Everybody's always looking for what's the next great decoy. I seldom use decoys. I rarely use a decoy at all because I have found that no matter how good the decoy is, unless it's a real bird, something about it can spook a bird. And I would much rather have a bird coming in looking for the object of his affection and the source of the sound that he heard as opposed to seeing a decoy from a distance, focusing on it, and then realizing it hasn't moved. Most decoying birds that are killed are usually two-year-olds. Something that Ben Rogers Lee told me very long time ago, very early on, was kill the birds that need killing and then go after the birds that you want to kill. And when I asked him about that, he said the birds that need killing are the ones that want to die, the ones that respond. He says, you're always going to have two-year-olds. They're satellite birds. They're peripheral birds. They're not the boss Tom. They're looking for uh, you know, an easy score. They're looking for those receptive hens that are not with the, the boss gobbler and they're willing to, to chase each other around and, and race to go get there. Uh, it's like teenage boys, you know, you're, you're most of your birds that are killed, especially early season. They're your teenagers. They're two year old birds or they're really early season drops from the previous year. What I call super Jakes. I got six, seven inch beard, full tail fan, but, they got three quarter inches of spur, you know, maybe an inch at most. That's a young two year old or a year and a half old bird. What you're looking for is that inch to inch and a quarter, nine to 10 inch beard. That's your two year old bird. And that's what most guys are killing. Once you get up over that and you get in closer to that inch and a half range of, of spur, beard matter doesn't, beard length doesn't matter so much because they shear them off constantly. But that spur length, that tells you how old a bird is. And so once you start getting close to that, you know, inch and inch and seven sixteenths, inch and a half, inch and five eighths, now you're into the three and four year old bird age, and you've gotten a really mature bird at that point. So have you ever chased the same bird for multiple seasons? Oh God, yes. And been successful <laughs> in the end. Yeah. Yes, yes, actually, I have. Um, two come to mind. Um, one, I used to have a piece of property over in Wesley Chapel that we hunted regularly. It was, um, a hunt club that I got into back in the middle eighties. Uh, it was called the dirty desert hunt club. And there were 12 of us. It was 2,400 acres. And I think we paid 400 bucks a piece for it. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and we maintained that price as we lost acreage and we lost members. We still maintain that price. So we had that up until three years ago. Uh, it wasn't 2,400 acres anymore. It was down to 800, but uh, you can see it now because it's, it's all housing developments and highway. Yeah. But that place was phenomenal. And there was a bird in our front field that my friend Paul and I used to chase every season. He was a big double beard. And um, 
I actually put a guy on him and he refused to shoot it because he hadn't patterned his gun like I told him to. And this bird was at 40 yards and I called him in once for Paul and Paul missed him. And, uh, we eventually, I ended up killing him. Um, and he was a stud, but he wasn't as big as he would have been. Had we been able to kill him the year before, because he'd worn his spurs down and his beard is had gotten sheared off with some beard rot. Um, and then there was a bird in Georgia that I killed that was every bit as big as from the time we started hunting and we called him Lone Ranger. Um, he never hung around with any other birds. He would always hang around with just one or two hens and that was it. He roosted in the same tree over and over again, but he always took a different route every morning coming out of it. And, um, I let my club president go after him one season and he missed him. I let our vice president go after him and he missed him. And finally, after, you know, chasing that bird around for a while, I said, okay, I'm going to go after him. And they're like, well, you're never going to kill him. I'm like, I'm going to kill him. And I hunted him two weekends and got close, but no cigar. And finally slipped right in up underneath his limb that he was roosted on in the dark. And he, I watched him walk on the limb and gobble and get dive bombed by, um, by crows. And when he pitched out, he pitched out away from me, and I just hit him with a couple of soft little clucks. And he turned and paralleled me coming up the side of the hill. And when I finally got an open shot on him, I rolled him back down the hill. And he ended up with uh, an inch and five eight spurs and a 12 and a quarter inch beard. He was 25 and a half pounds. Golly. That's a good he was, He's a stud. And he's, he's on my wall in full strut on a limb in my office. Jeez. He's already taking up bird. a lot of real estate. Yeah. <laughs> yes, he does take up a lot of real estate, but he's well worth it. So what are some of the ways you've chose to give back to the game you pursue? Well, um, you know, I've, I've been involved in a lot of different um, conservation organizations. I've been part of NWTF for years and years, although I'm not um, on a board anymore. I'm still an active member. And I sponsor every year. Um, you know, I, I take kids hunting uh, a lot of times without charging them or their parents. Uh, I try to make sure that um, I, I spend as much time as I possibly can helping to mold our our management practices and our, our annual uh, hunting regulations through FWC by sitting on the different management boards. I do have a, a degree in wildlife biology and I have my certified wildlife biologist classification um so i you know it's it's important to me to get it right and it's it's been a labor of love and god knows if i spend as much time actually working for a living as i do on the stuff that i'm i'm doing pro bono i'd probably be a much richer man <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wouldn't man, have this... to worry sometimes about am i gonna make the car payment this month but um you know, it's it's a labor of love, and, and you, you give back because it's important to you. And I may not have all the money in the world, but I do have knowledge and I do have time. So that's what I give. One of the things that all hunters seem to have in common is we're all, you know, at least for a goodly portion of the year, we are deficit spenders. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> I quit doing that. If I don't have the cash in hand, I don't buy it. Oh, that's just because you're, you're, you're 50. But I no, I've been doing that. I've been doing that since I got in trouble with a credit card at twenty two. Yeah, <laughs> but I need it. Yeah, no, I uh, I learned very quickly. Credit cards are the devil. And I've got two, and they stay in my wallet, and I hardly ever use them unless I'm renting a car or going to a hotel. Good man. 
Yours for 136 easy payments. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this 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 hundred dollar piece of garbage that you're buying as a toy will cost you three hundred and fifty dollars by putting it on a credit card. So uh, we've given a couple of our stories, and I know mm-hmm. you've got plenty to tell. Uh, but so to start it off, what was tell us the story of either your your first guided hunt or a memory from a guided hunt that'll forever stick with you. Okay. So I've been doing this now. This is my 29th season. And as I told you before, I started out really early charging way too little, but as things progressed and I started getting better at it and and marketing myself, I started giving away hunts at one point, these different organizations. So Rocky Mountain Hunt Foundation, I gave away a hunt to, and I told them I wanted to go on live auction that I wouldn't give it to them unless it went on live auction because it was worth too much to put it on a silent auction. Everything on silent auction goes cheap. So what did they do? They put it on silent auction and it went for $250. This is a two and a half day private land Osceola hunt. Uh, no lodging, but, uh, but you know, snacks and, and meals throughout the day. And, um, the guy who bought it, I will, I will not say his last name, but he, his name is Elmer which should have been a big red flag at that point. <laughs> so Elmer, Elmer's a big money guy and he saw the value in it and bought this thing on silent auction for two fifty. So he calls me, actually he calls me up after the banquet and he says, I've got your hunt. I've got your card here. Um, it's November. What do I need to do to get ready? I said, well, you know, what shotgun do you have? So he tells me, I got a SBE too. Okay. Uh, or a super, a super black. He has super, one of the first people, super black eagles. I said, okay, that's, that's a good gun. He says, what do I need as far as a choke? And what do I need for sights? And this, that, and the other. So I said, look, do you, do you want to put a scope on your gun or do you use it for other things? So, no, I use it for other stuff. I'm like, okay, well, at the end of the waterfowl season, when you're done using it for waterfowl, here's some William sights that are true glow. Put these on there. Here's the shells that you can choose from. Get a smattering of them. Here's a good choke tube for your particular gun. Go pattern your gun. I want you to pattern it at least out to 40 yards. And this was before TSS and all the extended range stuff. I mean, the most we had was copper plated, you know, double X, or you could shoot a, um, like a, a composite shot that had, you know, two by six by four or whatever. Right. So multiple size shot. So I, I gave him a list of things to do, and his homework was to get his gun ready and be confident in it. <clears throat> so the night before the hunt, he calls me up, and I said, look, I want you to meet me at the Waffle House over here, 4 o'clock in the morning. We're going to have breakfast. Be ready to go. Be dressed. Have your gear. You're going to put it in my truck, and then we're going to go. And I said, we got a guy coming along to film, and um, should be a great morning. So my cameraman and I get there at Waffle House and we're in full camo and there's nobody but one guy in a red polo shirt and khakis and he's reading the Wall Street Journal and I'm like oh this guy's probably getting ready to go play golf today so we sit down and we order breakfast and it's getting on five o'clock we've been there you know an hour and um so we finish our breakfast and pay our bill I'm like well I guess he's not coming we need to haul butt because it's going to get late soon so Paul and I get up from the table, and as I'm walking out, the guy in the red polo says, are you Chuck? 
I said, are you Elmer? He says, yeah. I'm like, what are you doing in street clothes? I told you to be ready. We're the only idiots in here in camouflage. You should have approached me before now. Um, so long story short, I throw him in the truck with his stuff, get him to change in the vehicle and we get parked and start walking to the area I wanted to get set up in. And we had to go a different route than I wanted to go because of the fact that we're running short on time. So we get set up in this little oak hammock and we've got a cow pasture in front of us and a cypress head on the backside of it. And it's about 45 yards from the cypress head to the fence line where we're sitting on. I set him down in some palmettos, put him in a chair. I roll underneath the, the bottom strand of barbed wire, stick two decoys up and then roll back under back to the side we're sitting on. I sit down, I pull a call out and I hit it twice and three gobblers fly straight down into the decoys and the trees just come alive. We've got within 10 minutes, we've got about 30 hens, these three gobblers, probably seven or eight jakes. And that big double beard that I told you about is sitting on the backside of all of them about 45 yards. He's right against the cypress edge. And Elmer says, which one do I take? I said, which one do you want? They're all good birds. Take one. So any one of these three gobblers right here is fine. Meanwhile, Paul's behind us filming the whole thing, and he's got another big gobbler that slides in from behind us and is at about six steps behind us. And, um, and Paul's whispering to me, there's one right over your right shoulder. I'm like, I can't move. We're not going to do anything. So I tell him, I said, he says, which one's the biggest? I said, the one in the back. I said, shoot him. He's like, no, he's too far. I'm like, he's 40 yards. Take him. No, he's too far. I didn't shoot my gun that far. <laughs> How far did you shoot your gun? 20 yards. I'm just flabbergasted. So I'm like, well, shoot one of the other ones. He's, he's no, I want the double beard. Okay. We worked that bird in that field from one end to the other for three and a half hours. I finally get the bird into him at 22 steps. At this point, we have circled this field two times. We are now laying down, face down, in a bull hole right off the edge of the cypress. And this bird's at 22 yards. And all I can see of Elmer is the tip of his gun shaking up and down wildly. And I told him, I said, just breathe and pull the trigger. Well, the first shot, the wad clears that bird's head by about four feet. Oh, oh, oh man. Geez. The wad. This the wad. The <laughs> second shot, I see the dirt kick up about six feet in front of the bird. And this bird is running and about to take off into flight. And he goes to shoot a third time and I grabbed his gun and pushed it down. I said, That's it. Don't shoot again. He's like, Why not? I said, That bird is way too far out of your range at this point, and all you're doing is making me mad. So let's let's quit pulling the trigger. And we'll gonna take a break and go have have lunch and we'll meet back here at three o'clock. He's like, well, I'm, I came from Sarasota. Can I, can I stay with you guys? I'm like, go into Ocala to pick up a horse trailer, man. He's like, well, I'll ride with you and I'll buy lunch. I'm like, fine. The whole time up to Ocala. I really think we should get back soon. I really think we should get back soon. I really think we should get back on that front field. Now mind you, this is a guy who has never ever turkey hunted before in his life. It's an exceptionally hot day. It's like 92 degrees, and he wants to go right back to that same field where he missed those birds. Against my judgment, I finally said, okay, I'm going to teach this guy a lesson. So I put him in the brambles 
out in the sun where the mosquitoes can just tear him up and let him bake in that sun <laughs> from two o'clock in the afternoon until dark. And we saw one hen come back into those retreats. And I knew where they were going, but he didn't want to listen to me. So I told him next morning, be here, be on time, be ready to go. We're going to set up across the other side of this field and we'll have those birds right there. So the next morning he's on time. We get in there, set up the decoys. At this time I was using decoys on this big field because the birds liked them. So the birds come in. I can hear him gobbling. I see him pitch down from the tree, but he pitches down into a palmetto flat. And I said, okay, he's either going to come through this side over here, right towards us, but more than likely he's going to come down the fence line through these short pines and when I see him, I'll let you know. I said, but you're facing the wrong direction. So you need to get turned towards that corner. Well, he doesn't do it. He refuses to do it. The bird comes out on that corner in the short pines. I said, he's there. I said, here's what I want you to do. When I tell you now, I want you to start inching as slow as you can, little by little, towards that bird's direction. Do you understand me? He's like, yeah. I said, no sudden movements, nothing big. Okay. So I'm going to go into fighting purrs, and when I do, he's going to duck underneath that barbed wire and come tearing out into that field. Are you ready? He's like, yeah. Okay, so I start doing fighting purrs. The bird ducks under. He starts coming running. He's got about 150 yards to come. He gets at about 50 yards, and I said, now. And Elmer picks up his gun and swings like he's shooting on quail that just jumped up from behind him. <laughs> at 150 yards? This turkey yards? puts on the brakes. Turns himself inside out and leaves a cloud of dust like the roadrunner behind him. And Elmer looks at me, agog, and says, what happened? I said, you happened, man. You didn't follow directions. He begins to question me. He begins to question why I set up the birds where the decoys where I did and why we set up where we were when he was clearly over there roosting in another location. And I, I said, listen, have you had shots at birds? He's like, yeah. I said, how many shots have you had? He said, well, I had at least three i'm like right i said did you have birds inside of your kill radius he's like yeah i said your hunt is over i said you got more than what you bargained for and i definitely got more than what i was willing to bargain for so we're done and um the president of rocky mountain Dove foundation calls me up a week later he says well elmer says he had a really good time he learned a lot even though he didn't get a bird i'm like well did he tell you why he's like no i said so I explained to him why. And he says, well, can we count on you for a donation next year? I said, nope, unless you can guarantee, unless you can guarantee that Elmer's not allowed to bid on. He's like, well, I can't do that. I said, forget it. Nope, not happening. He's the only guy to this day that I will not take a call from and I will never book again. Question is, have you got another call from him? I did, actually, a couple of years in a row. And I, I told him, no, I'm booked. Sorry. It's, uh, I don't, I, I can't wrap my head around why someone, especially coming from a novice standpoint like myself, why you wouldn't just listen to the guide. Well, there's those personalities that think they know it all, and then there's those personalities that think they can purchase whatever they want. And this guy happened to be both. And, uh, and, and it's unfortunate, but, you know, I, I'm used to seeing that kind of thing. Uh, my real job is I'm a private investigator, and I deal with some pretty foul people on a regular basis. And people are always trying to, you know, pull things over on, on you. And uh, I, I work specifically in insurance, and, and fraud is my, my specialty. 
So I'm I'm used to it, and I just roll with the punches and keep on trucking, man. That's all you can do. So how are you introduced to turkey hunting? Good question. Um, well, my dad never really turkey hunted when I was a kid. I think he went once with a neighbor of ours, and they floated down the Withlacoochee River and happened to jump a bird and shoot it on the wing and brought it home. But he was like, this, is, this isn't for me. It's not what I want to do. He took me a couple times as a kid, but he didn't know what he was doing. We basically just went on a, a long death march through the swamp in the middle of spring, getting eaten by mosquitoes and being torn up with cypress knees. But by about the time I was eight or nine, I'd met, you know, um, Eddie Salter and, and Ben Lee, and they gave me my first calls. And I'd seen birds in my neighborhood all the time and in the cow pastures. So my friend Paul and I decided we were going to teach ourselves how to hunt. And that's where we started, you know, killing birds on our spring break in the orange groves and the cow pastures around our house. And I didn't really understand turkey hunting well until I got to hunt at um, Fish Eating Creek with uh, Lovett Williams as a little kid. And when I was 10, I got to go in there and I, um, I took a bird in there that he called in for me. And it was, you know, it was a classic hunt, you know, birds gobbling on the limb. They fly down out of the cypress, they come in and strut and you, you get a bird that's right in front of you and he pulls them out of strut with a little key key call and, and he stretches that neck out and you shoot him. And I mean, it, it couldn't have been more picture perfect. And the cool thing is that same spot that I shot a bird in, you know, 40 years ago, three years ago, my daughter got drawn for fish eating Creek. Now that it's a public hunting area, cause it used to be private. She got drawn and we humped it back in there to that very same spot. And she was able to kill a bird, the same spot that I killed a bird in all those years ago. Wow. That's awesome. And so it was, it was, you know, my life came full circle. It was great. So what is your favorite turkey hunting story? My favorite? Oh, let's see. There's a bunch. I think by far the the best turkey hunt I've ever been on, well, the most fun turkey hunt I've ever been on that was completely just a fluke. Um, it was a hunt that I donated to NWTF. And one of the Pinellas guys from a neighboring chapter had come over and he bought the hunt on a live auction. And um, again, another little private piece of property in Wesley Chapel. We got in late and it was foggy as heck. And I decided, all right, we, we're not going to be able to get back to where I think these birds are at. So we're going to set up out here kind of on the edge of this, this road where the pine trees and the, and the swamp meet up with uh, the palmettos and a couple of scattered oaks. So we set up. And we sit down and it starts breaking daylight and I, I make a couple of calls. I don't hear anything. And all of a sudden I hear David, my guest, he says, don't move. I said, what do you mean? He goes, this bird flew right down in front of us. I'm like, what, what bird flew down in front of us? I can't see anything. He's like, no, it's big gobbler right here. I mean, we walked underneath this bird in the morning. He never saw us. We never saw him. It was so much fog. I couldn't see the bird and I'm sitting right next to David, but he could see him. He's two feet closer and he could see him. And, uh, and he ended up shooting this thing. I mean, the, the whole hunt lasted all of about 27 or 28 minutes. Um, the only thing that was ever faster was one that I did with my dad. Um, uh, we got there super late cause my dad's always <laughs> late for everything. <laughs> <clears throat> had to have his coffee, had to have his morning dumps, you know, I can understand that. 
you know, I and um, understand that. we get we get to where we're going and there's five trucks already parked at this spot. And I'm like, you know what? I bet everybody has run to this back back pasture back here. I said, let's hunt right here by the trucks. He's like, really? I'm like, yeah. I said, I know there's birds around this field. Let's hunt right here. And so I owl call from the truck and we got six different gobblers to respond all the way around this field. I'm like, let's go over here. We run around the corner. We, we didn't go 200 yards from the truck. Sit down on the fence line. I call a couple times. Bird flies down out of the field and runs right out in front of us. Dad shoots him. Oh, we were back in the truck. I mean, the dew hadn't even rested on the truck yet from the fog. And we were, we were back and having breakfast in no time flat. I think the whole hunt from the time we pulled in the gate to the time we left was less than 20 minutes. Those are the best kind of hunts where you can go have breakfast. Those are awesome. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely yeah. awesome. But, um, one other hunt that was really memorable. Um, you guys are familiar with bass assassin lures. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the owners of bass assassin live up in Mayo and this was probably say about 11 years ago. Their son was trying to kill this bird, and I was hunting an adjacent property to where they were at. And his dad called me up, said, "Hey, you know, come over and call for him. We've been having a hard time getting this bird, but he's hanging up in this one little cypress head, and there's token grass everywhere, and we'll try and get on him." So I'm sure. Well, long story short, we called this bird in middle of the afternoon. Ended up having a 19 and an eighth inch beard, Holy single God. longest beard ever killed in the state of Florida. I called it in and um, killed by a nine-year-old boy. That's awesome. Kid must have been tripping on the beard as he's dragging the bird. It was. <laughs> it was. And we put it on the tailgate, and the beard is hanging down past the ball on the truck. That's crazy. <laughs> That's just amazing that it, you know, that, that beard was blessed that he wasn't dragging it on palmettos and things it, like if, that. If, if, if it hadn't been for the Kogan grass everywhere, you know, that real lush yeah. green grass that you see at the, the mining companies have, uh, if it hadn't been for that Kogan grass everywhere, that beard would have been sheared off. But the funny thing is, is that his spurs were only seven eighths of an inch. Really? Yep. Wow. Yep. Jeez. Nothing. Little nubs for spurs. Seven eighth inch spurs. But he had a nineteen and an eighth inch beard. That's, That's crazy. Isn't it? It really is. <laughs> It's insane. I mean, and, and I've been blessed to kill a lot of big birds, and have a lot of big birds killed in front of me. Um, I called in the, the women's NWTF record triple beard in the state. Um, I've called in several of the top 20 birds in the state. And, um, I've you know, we've killed several birds that have two-inch spurs, multiple beards. So, I mean, the, the most we've ever killed that I've ever had killed is a four-bearded bird. Jeez. But, um, yeah, but there's, I think the state record is seven beards. That's crazy. That, Isn't it? That, man. Chuck, I can't, is, that, is that just a genetic anomaly where something's actually gone wrong to have that many no, beards? No, all the, all the beard is, it's a, um, it's actually a feather follicle that has changed in the way that it grows. Right. And so that's what the beard is. It's basically that's why you see hens every now and then will get a beard. It's, um, sometimes they'll have multiple follicles that will grow beards instead of the one. Right. And so and, and most of the time they're in line with each other. But like that women's NWTF one that, that is a state record, they're not in line with each other. They're kind of staggered. One's 
top right or one's top left and the other one's kind of off center left. So it's really weird looking, but, um, yeah. Okay. Giant. And all three of the beards are practically the same length. I mean, all of them were over 10 inches. So what's your favorite way to cook Turkey? Oh, it depends. I mean, Turkey breasts, it's kind of hard to beat deep fried Turkey breasts. Word. Uh, yeah, I do not oil. disagree. <laughs> yeah. But when it comes to the legs and thighs, um, roasting, well, if I take the whole bird and I smoke it, I do a candy smoke on a bird. That's absolutely phenomenal. Let it soak for about two or three days in, um, teriyaki and brown sugar and honey. Oh. And then, um, I get a good amount of pepper and garlic and a little salt. And I, I thicken it up with some molasses and a little bit more honey and brown sugar. And I keep basting it about every hour and it builds up this candy shell on it. That's unbelievable. But, um, I take the legs and thighs off of most of my birds and I boil them, shred the meat and, uh, I make pot pie out of them. And that's a huge hit here at the house. Turkey pot pie. Oh, I bet. Yeah. That sounds good. Yeah. Yeah. It's easy to do, especially if you go to Publix and you get the, I I don't usually use the, the pie dough. I use the phyllo dough or the puff pastry dough and it's so much better. That's a good way to use more of the bird than just the breast. Cause yeah, you use the whole bird. Yeah. You know, I'll, I don't usually keep the backbone, but I take the legs and the thighs and I take the full breast and we keep all that meat. I mean, there's really nothing left unless you want to make stock and you can make stock from, from boiling the legs anyway. So, right. Yeah, you yeah. can smoke the wings. Um, same thing. Yeah. But normally I take first. wing bones out of the wings to make calls with. So, mm. Unless I'm unless I'm plucking one to smoke, I, I normally don't keep the wings. I, I use them for calls. So at the end of every episode, we we do a segment we call the unappreciated outdoors tip of the week. Okay. Um. So what what have you got? Do you have something this week for us? Tip of the week. Um. Sure. When when it comes to turkey hunting. Um. What I always tell everybody is if you think you've sat long enough, sit 30 more minutes before you move. If you think it's time to move, wait 30 more minutes. If after you've told yourself it's time to move and you've waited 30 minutes and you still haven't seen a bird or a bird hasn't come in that you've been able to identify, then you can get up and move. But a lot of times giving it that little extra bit of time um, will help you be successful more often than not. Fair enough. Yeah, makes sense. Yep. I think I'd have to say, just from gathering, you know, doing different podcasts to different hunting species related, is just don't be afraid to dive in. Because, you know, a lot of people start with... <laughs> Stole my idea. Yeah. <laughs> a lot oh, of yeah, people, man. Hey, I, I will get aggressive if nothing else is working. Don't be afraid to try different stuff. Yeah. And I mean, just because you have a call that you know you love and you think sounds great, I have heard natural birds sound god awful in the woods. And if I hadn't known for a fact that they were birds, I would think it's some novice hunter out there just whacking away on a call. Yeah, yeah. You I, know, I've heard it myself. Just birds don't even sound like a bird. You're just like a. So right. I, you know, I've never tried to be like extremely crisp, like perfect with a call. If it gets jacked up, you just keep rolling with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, birds make mistakes just like we do. You know, I've I've heard them do stupid things. 
Lord knows, you know, nothing's perfect, not even the animals. No. Uh, if it wasn't for stupid birds, I'd never would have killed one. <laughs> <laughs> kind of feel the same way about women. If it wasn't for that, I would have never gotten married. Wow. But... <laughs> Zing! <laughs> Check it, sleep it on the couch. Yep, oh, that's all right. I kill all the stupid animals. I'm, I'm, th- I'm, yeah. improve- I'm making it harder on everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, kill the birds that need killing. So um, I was very much going to say, you know, get out there that it's intimidating and things like that. But another way, you know, a great way to shortcut that process. And I'm a stubborn SOB. There's a lot of things that I just kept grinding and grinding and grinding and making the same dumb mistakes until all of mm-hmm. a sudden, you know, you know, found the acorn, so to speak. But then one day I finally said, I'm going to hire a guide. <laughs> Holy cow, you could cut yourself about seven years of heartache in one afternoon. Yeah, a little yeah. Bit of cash. it's amazing what you can learn from somebody who's experienced, right? It is, it is not a failure to hire a guide. Never. Um, you know, I guess it would be a failure if you hired a guide and just didn't pay attention, kind of slept through everything. Yeah. Whether it, it doesn't matter what you're hunting, but, you know, if you're paying that guide and, he's a, and, and he is a good guide, I found the best ones, they, they are teachers at the heart. And they are just, you should bring a notepad because they will give you everything. I mean, well, maybe not everything, but they'll, they'll just, they'll, they'll, they'll go out of their way to share their knowledge, uh, much like you've kind of done here tonight. Oh, I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's just hire the guide. And then I'll tell you, I, I, I would say don't fall in love with the idea that I just go pay for a hunt because that's a great time and I do that. But I, I, absolutely love then taking that and seeing if I can replicate what that master did and when you when you pull that off um, nothing beats it but pay the tuition because you you, know, check yeah, out, school, you and I are 50 school's definitely in session when you go with a guide and I mean I've, I've hunted with some of the best callers some of the best turkey hunters in the world and if you if you're not learning something new every time you go out with somebody who's better than you or if the animals themselves aren't educating you every time you go out, then you're doing something wrong. I mean, you really are. You're wasting your time. Yeah. If you're not learning something each time you go out. I mean, I'm constantly learning new things every time I go and I've been doing this for a long time. But for me, I mean, I take a lot of pride in, in being a guy I take a lot of pride in my state and I'll make you this guarantee. If you ever book a hunt with me, you're not only going to get a full lesson in turkey hunting, you're going to get a history lesson. You're going to get an ecology lesson. You're going to get a biology lesson. You're going to be entertained from the time you wake up in the morning until the time you fall asleep at night. Because I want to put as much of it, as much of an experience together for you as possible. Because I want you to feel like you weren't just hunting. Like you were with a friend who cared about you enough to make you part of their own experience. Bravo. And that's how I look at being a guide. It's not just about making money. It's not just about killing animals. It's about creating a bond between myself and my customer that is deeper than just the monetary issue or the heritage of hunting. It's, it's a friendship. Anybody who has shared a blind with me becomes a friend. I feel like that's, that's really something that makes me like the main thing that makes me want to return to a guide too. Cause I, I could go on a hunt 
or fishing or whatever and not catch or kill something because that's just nature and that's how it happens sometimes. But just to be treated that way by somebody, it's like, hey, I'm going to go out with that guy again because that was, that was a good time. Yeah. Yeah, the camaraderie is a big deal. In fact, I think I think all of us, I think we all hunt deer. Um, and I, I love it. And that you know, part of the reason that I hunt deer because I'm a wild game eating fellow is uh, really is payload. But my real passions for hunting are around the other things: small game hunting, turkey hunting, which you can do solo or with with a buddy. Um, you know, duck hunting. Mm-hmm. Jordan's been with us on on the goose and crane hunts, and the things that are best about them is is really the stuff that's going on when the birds aren't present. Yeah. The stories and the jokes. Oh, yeah, man. Well, the camaraderie of, of wing shooting is phenomenal. I mean, that's why we do it, really. It's not so much for the shooting. It's for all the other peripheral stuff that goes on with it. You know? I think that's something that if uh, people that were really estranged to hunting did more of it. I, mean, maybe, I think a lot of people can't wait to go out and hunt, hunt a deer. And what they really want to do is they want to sit in the seat and tell the the animal walks out in front of the corn feed or into the, you know, the road cr- crossing mm-hmm. and bam. And that's not what they, even that person that has that experience really doesn't understand how much work it went into figuring out where to put that no. line to the stand. But if you take somebody out uh, on a, on a goose hunt or on a, on a duck hunt or even on a turkey hunt where you've got those moments where you're just sitting there whispering back and forth between each other and, mm-hmm. you know, telling, you know, just swapping lies and things like that and that intimacy that develops. And then all of a sudden you hear that, you know, that, and, and, ah, you know, it's, that's the thing I think would, you, you know, know how I started my kids. Fall in love with that. How I started my kids wasn't small game. It wasn't turkeys. I mean, they all, you know, both my kids killed their birds early in their lives. I started my kids quail hunting and dove fields because the pressure's off. It's, it's about watching the dogs. It's about being out there with the rest of the group and, and just enjoying each other's company and the nature. And, you know, if you get over as a quail, birds and dogs are on point, you flush those birds and you get some shots, it's great. But if you don't, you still get to watch the dogs work. And you get to spend time together being intimate with one another, you know, and discussing things that you don't normally discuss when you're sitting at home and, and you know, in front of the television or, or you're riding in the car or whatever. I mean, it's just, you don't have the weight of the world on you. And so those things are what help mold, especially kids into being better hunters because they have the opportunity to let their guard down and fall in love with the outdoors and the sport of hunting, no matter what type of hunting it is. And that's why to this day, my kids would still rather wing shoot than anything else. They're good deer hunters or good turkey hunters. They've done it all. You know, but but they would, and they love to bow hunt. But they would still much rather sit in a duck blind or sit on a dove field on a stool, eating beef jerky and drinking Gatorade and yucking it up. That's that's you know that are watching the dogs you know work work and flush quail. They, that's 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 hunting to them more so than anything else. Absolutely, and I, I can completely one hundred and ten percent agree with that. I, I didn't really get into. Uh, wing shooting until much later on in my life after I was 18 started doing some dove hunting and then got into duck hunting uh, via my brother Jordan oh man three years ago maybe yeah. 
and I have just completely fallen in love with the camaraderie aspect of it. Um, there's not so much pressure to be so quiet and be so still and have to, I mean, you still have to hide to an extent, but it's just a different atmosphere. It's a, a much more relaxed atmosphere. Well, it's hours of goofing off punctuated by moments of being still and hiding. Right. Yeah. Yep. You know, as opposed to deer hunting where it's hours of sitting still punctuated by hopefully a second or two of, of elation. Right. You know, I'm sure you've also experienced this, right? You come back, you've been out there in the blind all day or doing your thing. And, and my wife often asks this question, like, what do you guys talk about when you're out there? And I'm like, uh, uh, everything, nothing. <laughs> right? everything like, and nothing we talk about all. everything, but it's, it's like a Seinfeld show. Like, yeah, nothing. <laughs> yeah, nothing. We, we didn't talk about much, but we spent all day talking about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's the time that you get to to bond with those people that you, you choose to share your life and your blind with. Yeah. And and I tell everybody this. If you could find a copy of it, um, there's a book out there by um, – oh, God, what's his name? Um. The, the book is called From Voice to Men of Heart, Hunting as a Rite of Passage. Uh, Dr. Eaton. Dr. Eaton is the one who wrote it. it. If you can find it, it's out of it's out of circulation, but if you can find it and you can pick it up, uh, it's, a, it's one of those must-reads for me. It, it discusses exactly why hunting was so important to us growing up, for those of us who grew up in it, and why it was so important to our father's generation and, and our grandfather's generation and how we've lost that. And, uh, if you can, if you can find it from boys of men, to men of heart, uh, hunting is a rite of passage by Dr. Eaton, Randall Eaton. It's, it's phenomenal. It's a phenomenal read. I'll, I'll definitely be looking for that yeah. one. Yeah. So I'll say for my tip of the week, take a page from my notebook and just don't quit. I've been chasing turkeys for more than 10 years. I wander out every season, and I make turkey calls, and I hear turkeys gobble, and I have still yet to kill one, but I refuse to quit, knowing that one day um, I'll be successful. But success is, a, is an odd measure yes. uh, to, to judge your hunt by, because I've learned more out of failure than I have ever learned from success, especially in the hunting world. Um, and that oh, for transcends me, boundaries from turkey hunting to deer hunting to duck hunting to any kind of hunting. Well, for me, for me, success is, did I enjoy my time of field and do I feel like I accomplished my goal of hunting? Because my goal is not killing. Killing is nice. You know, harvesting an animal is, is, is a great thing, but it's not what we all most often do. What we most often do is we hunt. Did I get to hunt? Did I hunt safely? Did I hunt completely? Was I involved in the hunt? And, and that's that's a success to me. If I was involved in the hunt, if I was enthralled with it, if it, I got to spend all that time out there and truly enjoy and immerse myself in the, the art of hunting, then the hunt was a success. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. Well, we go ahead and wind this down. I, I will, uh, you know, we've been talking about every week. We want you guys to leave that five-star review, and if you leave it, I'll read it. 
guess what we have this week again? Another one. Another Ta-da! new review. So Another one. I'm going to go ahead and read that for you guys. This one comes from Angler Al. Five stars. I feel like I'm hanging out with these guys each time I listen. Great discussion on hunting, fishing, and conservation as well. Lots of funny pieces sprinkled throughout. Looking forward to the next episode. We really appreciate those five-star reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts, because they help us get pushed up further into that search criteria when you just search hunting podcast or fishing podcast or whatever that's going to push us further up towards the top so that more people get to listen uh, when they're just searching for that type of material. But always, nothing is better than word of mouth. So if you like what you're listening to, tell a friend, tell a family member, and get them to leave a five-star review. Uh, and as we come into the opener of regular season up here north of 70 this weekend, you've still got Gobblers and Garbage event going on with BHA where you can collect that garbage and earn those extra points towards some awesome prizes. So make sure you're doing that and registering that stuff with the Florida chapter. And you'll be able to find links to the Florida Chapters page, plus how to join BHA, our Facebook page. All that good stuff is going to be in the podcast description. So make sure you guys scroll on down there after you read a little bit about Mr. Chuck Echenique. And uh, we appreciate you guys listening this long. And and Chuck, I, I really appreciate you being here. And if you, we'd love to have you join us for the crawfish boil we've got coming up in May. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've, I was going to talk to Jim about that. I definitely would like to make it, and if I can, I may even bring a couple extra calls with me or something. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. We're having it on the Wekaiba River. So okay. if you've got a mud boat and you want to run a mud boat, I do. You know, we had a lot of mud, boat, mud runs get canceled this year due to COVID. So that was right. our, one of our big things. We want to have it on the river. So if you want to run a mud boat to it, you could do that. Put it on the St. John's and run down to us. Sounds good. So that'll be May 1st. And tickets are on sale now. You can send it, send us money via Cash App um, at Money Sign Capital U Capital P Capital O in Outdoors, and they're fifteen dollars for adults, ten bucks for kids over six. Kids under six are free. If you show up the day of the event and have not pre-purchased a ticket, everybody is twenty dollars. But we need people to purchase tickets prior to showing up, so we know how much crawfish to buy. We've got a guy go. driving all the way to Louisiana to get live crawfish. Hey, Will, when do you think this podcast is going to drop? It will. Today is Thursday the 18th. It'll be on Monday. So what would the following Friday be? That would be the 23rd? No, the following Friday would be the 26th. 26th. So I'll make you a deal if you listen to this podcast. Uh, anybody, the first 10 people that pick up tickets between now and the 26th, I will match your ticket for a friend. Can't beat right. that. Yeah. Can't beat that. So make sure, I'll tell you what, when you hit us between Monday and Friday, you said, right, make sure to mention Jim in your comments on the uh, the Cash App. Okay, we'll have to throw something about that on the event page there. We definitely will. I'll get on that tonight. But, Chuck, I, I really appreciate you joining us this week. I think it was very informative, and I look forward to putting it out there for everybody to listen to. Yes, sir. Well, Jim, I really appreciate you guys having me on. I had a great time with you. And uh, feel free to call me back for anything else, man. Uh, you know, if you ever do anything on um, deer management or just general game management, land management, I, I'm pretty well versed in all that stuff. So we're looking, doing we're it for looking, a long time. Uh, 
to do a land management one here soon. So great. We'll have to get you back on here. All right, fellas. Well, thank you again so much for having me on. I really enjoyed my time. Yep. You have a good night. All right. You too, fellas. Mm -hmm. Thanks again. Good night.